0: Hello and welcome to the space above us. Episode 85, Space Shuttle Flight 18, STS-51G. The Spartan, The Prince, and the Star War. Last time, we talked about the first operational flight of Space Lab, STS-51B. We went spelunking in the space shuttle, took a deep dive into the biography of longtime astronaut first-time flyer Don Lind, and performed a whole bunch of science experiments. Space Lab missions both returned a wealth of data on their own, and also provided invaluable experience that NASA would be able to put to use when research began on the International Space Station a few years down the road. Before we get into today's mission, we have every listener's favorite part of the show. The part where I introduce a new class of astronauts, and you try your best to remember their names as I rattle them off rapid fire. On June 4th, 1985, Astronaut Group 11 was introduced to the world so it's time for me to introduce them to you. For the pilots, we have Michael Baker, Bob Cabana, Brian Duffy, Tom Henricks, and Stephen Thorne. For mission specialists, we have Jay Apt, Sam Gamar, Linda Godwin, Rick Hybe, Tammy Jernigan, Carl Mead, and Pierre Thuo. Everyone in this group would fly at least three times, Except for Stephen Thorne, who was killed in May of 1986 when a stunt plane he was riding in crashed. Mission Specialist Linda Godwin wins this class's Going the Distance Award, with her final flight being STS-108 in December of 2001. Welcome to the podcast, astronauts. And there's still just one more quick little detour we have to take into a topic that had the potential to make a huge change in the spaceflight landscape, but in the end won't affect our story all that much. The Strategic Defense Initiative. Now, I'm sure that exhilarating title has you on the edge of your seat for more details, but the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI for short, is cooler than the name implies. You might know it better by the derisive nickname attached to it by Senator Ted Kennedy, Star Wars. At this point in history, the Cold War between the United States and Soviet Union is still going. It's the same geopolitical conflict that spawned the space race of the 1960s in the first place. Tensions weren't exactly at Cuban Missile Crisis levels at this point, but there was still real concern that thermonuclear war could break out at any moment. Both the US and Soviet Union had, and still has, thousands of intercontinental ballistic missiles, tipped with multiple nuclear warheads, any one of which were hundreds or thousands of times more powerful than the weapons that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. These missiles were basically just suborbital rockets with mean payloads. They would launch, get above the atmosphere, ensure that the warheads were on a trajectory that would carry them to whatever city they were targeting, and their job was done. The warheads would then coast through space, re-enter the atmosphere, and detonate over their targets. So far, the reason this hadn't happened, or at least a big reason was a concept known as Mutually Assured Destruction. Neither country could launch their missiles, because in addition to it being a really jerk move to kill millions of civilians, if they launched, the other country's satellites would see the launch. At that point, the targeted country immediately has to launch their own nuclear response, or lose the ability to do so, since their launch sites will certainly be targeted. So by launching a nuclear attack all a country really does is guarantee its own immediate destruction. Well, its own destruction in 20 to 40 minutes. The concept of mutually assured destruction prevented an all-out nuclear holocaust, but it still wasn't the most comforting arrangement. President Reagan was not a fan of the idea that the US military would be able to track incoming warheads with no difficulty, but would be helpless to do anything about them. But, you know, that's just the way it is. Intercepting a nuclear warhead in flight was basically impossible. Or was it? Welcome to the Strategic Defense Initiative. Announced on March 23rd, 1983, the SDI was an effort to develop the capability of shooting down incoming nuclear weapons. There isn't much time between when a nuke launches and when it impacts, especially if it's launched by a submarine just off the coast of the U.S., so whatever the SDI came up with would have to be fast, ready to operate at a moment's notice. There are a bunch of different ways to do this, but the one we'll be talking about today is lasers. Lasers, which by the way is an acronym, Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation, are a special type of light where all of the photons are the same frequency and move in the same direction. That's why you can use a laser to annoy cats or precisely point at things in slideshows, but a flashlight wouldn't work so great. If you can make a big enough laser with enough power and the right frequency, you can deliver a lot of energy at a distance. You can use this energy to pop balloons on YouTube, or more relevant to us, pop nuclear warheads in space. But to blow up an object in space with a laser, First, you need to be able to track an object in space with a laser. Which finally brings us back to today's flight. Because it turns out, there's a great spacecraft we can try tracking with a laser. It's big. It flies where we tell it. It points where we tell it. And if you ask nicely, the people inside it will even stick a mirror in the window for you. Yes, that's right. The space shuttle was going to be used for the quote, high precision tracking experiment. After all that build-up, the planned experiment is actually pretty easy. The crew will take a special 8-inch diameter retroreflector, slap it in the circular window at the center of the middeck hatch, and point the orbiter in the right direction. In this case, towards Maui, Hawaii, where a low-power laser will be directed towards the shuttle. More on that later. Flying this mission, which involves more than just lasers is a crew of seven, with three mission specialists and two payload specialists. And for a bit of space trivia, this is the first shuttle crew that didn't have anyone from the Apollo era. Commanding the mission was Dan Brandenstein, who we last saw flying as pilot on STS-8. This is his second of four flights. Alongside Brandenstein as pilot was J.O. Crichton. John Crichton was born on April 28, 1943 in Orange, Texas, but grew up in Seattle, Washington. He received a Bachelor of Science degree from the U.S. Naval Academy before joining, you guessed it, the Navy, where he learned to fly. After flying F-4Js around Vietnam for a couple of years, he came back and became involved in the development of the F-14. He returned to Vietnam, this time flying F-14s, and actually flew cover during the fall of Saigon, watching the evacuation of the embassy from 10,000 feet. He was selected as an astronaut in 1978, and this is his first of three flights. Moving back on the flight deck, Mission Specialist 1 was John Fabian, who we also saw on STS-7. This is his second and final flight. Mission Specialist 2, and the first of our rookie Mission Specialists, was Steve Nagel. Stephen Nagel was born on October 27, 1946, in Canton, Illinois. He earned a bachelor's in aerospace engineering from the University of Illinois, and later a master's in mechanical engineering from California State University. In between, he joined the Air Force and learned to fly the F-100, the A-7D, the F-4, and the T-28, even spending a year as a T-28 instructor for the Laotian Air Force. He, of course, did a stint as a test pilot at Edwards, which is where NASA found him in 1978. And if you're wondering why a test pilot is flying as a mission specialist, it turns out that Nagel is a multi-talented guy, and he'll be flying as pilot and commander in later flights. This is his first of four missions. Mission Specialist 3 was someone we'll be seeing a lot of, Shannon Lucid. Shannon Lucid was born on January 14, 1943 in Shanghai, China, where her missionary parents were when she was born, but if you asked her hometown, she'd say Bethany, Oklahoma. After graduating high school, she earned a pilot's license, eventually becoming a commercial, instrument, and multi-engine pilot. She earned a bachelor's in chemistry and a master's and PhD in biochemistry, all from the University of Oklahoma. She worked her way through a number of roles in chemistry, biochemistry, and molecular biology, working on cutting-edge research before joining NASA in 1978. This is her first of five flights, including a stint on Mir. Joining the mission specialists were two payload specialists. Payload specialist one was Patrick Baudry, who was born on March 6, 1946, in Cameroon. He flew in the French Air Force, and for this flight will be representing the National Center for Space Studies, France's space agency. He's got a couple of experiments we'll hear about later, and this is his only flight. And last but not least, payload specialist two... Sultan bin Salman bin Abdulaziz al Saud, royal prince of the House of Saud. Yes, this flight has a real deal prince on it. Sultan bin Salman was born on June 27, 1956 in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. He earned a bachelor's degree in mass communication from the University of Denver and was an active member of the Royal Saudi Air Force. He was included on this mission as a representative of the Arab Satellite Communications Organization, which owned one of the satellites for this flight. He became the first Arab, first Muslim, and at the time of this recording, youngest ever person to fly in space at only 28 years old. This is his only flight. Alright, that was a lot of information up front, so let's get this mission started. On June 17, 1985, at 7.33am, with no scrubs or delays, Space Shuttle Discovery lifted off from Launch Complex 39A. Ascent was uneventful, but more O-ring damage in the SRBs was discovered later. This was a growing cause for concern, but since it kept happening and missions kept landing safely, it might start to seem like maybe this is just a normal thing that happens. And just to get all the bad news out of the way early... Post-landing inspections found significantly more damage to the thermal protection system than usual. 315 debris hits were found, with 144 of them larger than 1 inch. Since the damage was glazed, it was apparent that this damage existed before reentry, so it wasn't made by kicking up rocks when landing in the desert at Edwards. The problem was later traced back to a faulty batch of insulating foam for the external tank, which caused bubbles to form... Which then expanded at altitude, which then popped pieces of foam off, which then struck the orbiter. Four tanks were affected by this batch. This one, two that had already flown, and the one for STS-51F, which would undergo additional inspection. So on this one ascent, we have the seeds of both the Challenger and Columbia accidents. I mention these incidents not to bring everyone down, but to show that these problems didn't come out of nowhere, They were, along with any other number of hiccups and problems, part of the day-to-day work of flying an operational vehicle, and few at this time suspected what impact they would eventually make. Anyway, Discovery successfully completed its ascent, and the mission got underway. The first three days were basically carbon copies of each other. On flight day one, the Morelos communication satellite was deployed and rode its PAM-D to geostationary orbit. On flight day 2, the Arabsat communication satellite was deployed and rode its PAM-D to geostationary orbit. And on flight day 3, the Telstar 303 communication satellite, say it with me now, was deployed and rode its PAM-D to geostationary orbit. The only real item to note here is that Arabsat telemetry caused concern that its solar array had deployed while still in the sun shield in the back of the payload bay but when they cracked open the shield and took a peek inside with the robot arm, there was no problem. It was just instrumentation. Also, I laughed when I discovered this strange error in the press kit that said, quote, About 80 seconds after deployment, when Arabsat is about 200 feet from discovery, the PAMD is jettisoned. Um, aren't you going to need that thing? (laughs) All right, ComSat's deployed. What else has been going on? Among other things were the two experiments being performed by French payload specialist Patrick Baudry. One, the French echocardiograph experiment, seems to just be a normal heart echo, but in space. Various members of the crew took turns having their hearts examined so doctors could learn more about how the cardiovascular system adapts to space. Neat. Baudry's other experiment was the French posture experiment. This used a number of biochemical electronic sensors data tape recorders, and a camera to measure muscle electrical activity, head movement, and eye movement. I think the gist of this is that the experiment studied how people moved and coordinated their bodies. The benefit of doing this in space is that it removes a variable that's normally pretty difficult to remove, gravity. By seeing how the lack of gravity affects the body's coordination, researchers can better understand how other factors contribute to body coordination. Later on flight day 3, once Telstar 303 was gone, it was time for the high precision tracking experiment. Laser time. The retroreflector was retrieved from its mid-deck locker and fitted into the window in the shuttle's hatch, and the coordinates of the laser facility were punched into the computer so that the orbiter could point in the right direction. When the time came though, no laser was seen. Was the laser broken? Did it miss? Why didn't it work? Well, because the orbiter was pointed in the exact wrong direction. When they punched in the laser facility coordinates, they mixed up some units. I think they input miles instead of feet, but don't quote me on that. So the shuttle thought the facility was far above them. It dutifully aimed the hatch straight up, oblivious to the laser shining in vain on its starboard side. Two days later, they tried it again, and on Orbit 64, the laser successfully departed Hawaii bounced off Discovery's hatch window, and returned to the laser facility. The crew could easily see the 4-watt green laser, especially when the system of computer-controlled mirrors that compensated for atmospheric distortion was deactivated. Turning the system off allowed the slight differences in our soupy atmosphere to bend the laser, which made it swing around like crazy, appearing to flash. The test was a success, but the same can't be said for the Strategic Defense Initiative. I might be getting ahead of myself a little, since we still have some other SDI-related stuff to fly on the shuttle, but the grand vision of laser-wielding satellites shooting down nuclear missiles never happened. After numerous technical challenges and mounting criticism, the effort sort of faded away, eventually morphing into today's Missile Defense Agency. In between the two laser tests on flight day four, the crew turned their attention to a fourth spacecraft in the payload bay. Unlike the usual slew of PAM-D equipped comsats, this was a scientific payload created by the Goddard Space Flight Center. The shuttle pointed Autonomous Research Tool for Astronomy, or Spartan. Spartan was a pretty neat idea that sought to pair the convenience of the Space Shuttle's capabilities with the autonomy and stability of a free-flying satellite. For a visual, imagine just a big box, roughly 3 by 1 by 1 meters, wrapped in gold-colored mylar, with a few odd protuberances sticking out, including an RMS grapple fixture. Pretty typical for space hardware. Inside the 1,000 kilogram structure were 130 kilograms of specialized astronomy instruments. These instruments could be swapped out depending on the mission at hand, and in this case focusing on X-ray astronomy. Spartan was designed to have the simplest possible interface with the orbiter, making integration, deployment, and berthing as painless as possible. With Lucid at the RMS controls, Spartan was deployed with no issues, and Discovery backed off to a maximum distance of around 190 kilometers, with a rendezvous planned for flight day 6. While it was on its own, Spartan would use a cold gas attitude control system to ensure that it pointed its instruments in the right direction, and rather than deal with the trouble of remote operation and a telemetry system, it simply recorded its data to local data tapes. So if they wanted their data back, they better get Spartan back. During its two-day deployment, Spartan collected X-rays from nearby galaxy clusters to search for clouds of hot gas, and turned its instruments on our own galaxy to scope out X-ray sources. Two days later, after the successful laser test, Discovery returned to Spartan, executing a V-bar rendezvous approach. But when John Fabian went to capture the satellite, the crew noticed a problem. No one was sure why, but Spartan had rolled 90 degrees to the side, so the grapple fixture was not where it was supposed to be. Rather than improvise a movement of the orbiter, they improvised with the RMS instead. The pilot crew moved Discovery closer to Spartan, with the little spacecraft almost in the payload bay, allowing Fabian to reach the grapple fixture and capture it. With Spartan safely back in its berthing clamps, the first of nine Spartan missions was complete. And with the Spartan mission complete, it was time to complete the overall STS-51G mission. The crew strapped back into their seats, and the Ohms engines fired for a 151 second deorbit burn, dropping the shuttle's perigee into the Earth's atmosphere and beginning the re-entry process. Just over an hour later, Discovery touched down on runway 23 at Edwards Air Force Base, coming to a stop a mile and a half later. Mission duration, 7 days, 1 hour, 38 minutes, and 52 seconds. For most astronauts, the moment after a mission successfully ends comes as a huge relief. The weight of their duties is lifted from their shoulders, even as the weight of gravity returns, and they can take some time to relax, look forward to the PR tour, and eventually their next flight. But for STS-51G pilot J.O. Crichton, he had other things on his mind, because he and his fiancée were getting married the very next day. Never a dull moment in the astronaut corps. I like this mission, because it's just so representative of the early shuttle era. We've got not one, not two, but three commercial commsats in the payload bay. We've got some payload specialists added late in the process with just a few months of training. We've got space laser tests for the Strategic Defense Initiative. And, well, we've got some SRB O-ring problems. I'm not sure if STS-51G made any lasting contribution to the overall fabric of the shuttle story but it's a great little look at what NASA human spaceflight was like in 1985. Next time. Among some astronauts, Space Lab missions have a reputation for being a little bit dull. But with Space Lab 2 on tap and Challenger back on the launch pad, STS-51F had a few tricks up its sleeve to make sure that the crew's blood got pumping. For the first and only time in the history of space shuttle launches, we'll turn a certain flight deck knob to the right and press to ATO. Add Astra. Catch you on the next pass.